0: Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more-than-human world, this season, we'll explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash podcast, And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Luby McNamara, an author, facilitator, designer, gardener, and mother. Having discovered permaculture in 1999, Luby was deeply inspired by the collaborative learning environment and the focus on emerging solutions through collective wisdom, and she has since written four books connected with these themes Cultural Emergence, People in Permaculture, Seven Ways to Think Differently, and Strands of Infinity. One of the leading voices of the permaculture movement, Luby has been a senior diploma tutor, a trustee and chair of the Permaculture Association, and she has taught and pioneered personal and social permaculture. Her first book, People in Permaculture, was written to globally translate the principles and design methods of permaculture for people-based systems, and her creation, The Design Web, has been used by thousands of people to create all sorts of designs. In 2016, she set up the Applewood Permaculture Centre with her family, where they run courses and grow their own food. In this conversation, we talk about everything from the three phases or stages of cultural emergence to ways in which we can build resilience and empowerment with ourselves and one another. And we even touch on how we might rethink the way that we educate. This is a really beautiful conversation that goes in all kinds of directions, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Luby, thank you so much for your time and for being in conversation with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to be here. So
0: I'd like to start, I'm going to invert the questions that I usually begin with, but I'd like to start by asking about this book that you recently released, which is called Cultural Emergence, a toolkit for transforming ourselves and the world, which draws upon your great experience in permaculture design, systems thinking, and also the lineages of indigenous wisdom. Can you tell me a bit about what cultural emergence means to you and perhaps what moved you to write the book?
1: So as, as you said I've been involved in permaculture for two decades now and permaculture comes from this tr- contraction of the word permanent agriculture and permanent culture and for a while that question of permanent culture has been fermenting with me of what, what does that mean, where, do we, where are we trying to go with that and uh, my Work in 2012, I published a book People and Permaculture, and that really focused on the people care ethic of permaculture and how we can use design to design our individual and collective well-being, and how we can make permaculture relevant to everyone and then through that in 2016 I was invited to collaborate with John Young who has got a lineage in deep nature connection and indigenous elders in the US and um, we came together and we we actually said well instead of doing my bit and your bit well let's see what emerges what's what's the new territory we can go into and we looked at what are what was the commonalities of our work and what was the the vision that we both held and we realised that it it is about this emerging a new culture that actually when we look at it as the question of are we connected to the more than human world? Are we empowered in our own lives? Are we healthy? These are cultural questions, individual well-being sits within a cultural context and so when we start to adapt the cultural context we're in then we have capacity for growth and regeneration. This um, phrase of regenerative culture is one that's getting used more now it's kind of replacing sustainability and we're sort of saying well actually it's not sustainability we want is regeneration so how do we regenerate and then what does that actually mean and so I've pulled it down into it's creating cultures of personal leadership collective wisdom and planetary care Mm.
0: so then connecting with that idea of regeneration and some of the cultural context you've described from your perspective maybe from that perspective what do you think may be happening in the global human psyche right now if we can use that frame
1: So we have three phases of cultural emergence and there's practices that activate all of these phases and the three phases are challenge and awaken, move and invigorate, nourish and empower and when we have a balance of those then we're moving into this fertile emergence where you know health and prosperity and wellness and creativity and empowerment and um, all of these things can emerge, but we need a balance of those. Uh, and if we have too much of one, then it, it can sap our energy rather than regenerate us. And that's a balance over a day, uh, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime, even. Um, and that balance is different for each of us. But I think there's a collective, at the moment, a collective imbalance, and we've got too much of the challenge and awaken. So the challenge and awaken has practices of awareness of culture. So this is really a lot of the unseen patterns of our of our culture, the values, the norms, the parameters, the beliefs. They're all being uh, shifted around, and a lot of things that were unseen uh, um, and maybe unspoken have kind of come to the surface and another of the practices of cultural emergence that connect with the challenge and awaken phase is pattern disruption and every single one of us on the planet I I believe um, has had huge pattern disruption over the last year with the pandemic Mm. Uh, and so we're trying to kind of reform what's happening and I think on a Uh, uh, you know on an individual level maybe even a community level there has been some of the nourish and empower and the move and invigorate but on a collective level that isn't really happening i would say on a you know on a big scale the you know know, the government's narrative isn't around empowering the people it isn't about supporting us emotionally it isn't you know so it's there's a there's a, a lack of that. And there's also a lack of the move and invigorate the like, okay, how do we design our way out of this? How do we design more resilient systems? How do we um, adapt the systems that we've got so that they're more functional for the purpose for the time and context that we're in. And so that's what I believe is happening. We're just we're actually getting too much challenge and awaken, and then it isn't being balanced by the other phases. Mm, that's such
0: a fascinating perspective
1: yeah I mean it 's quite simplistic, but then that, I think there's actually quite a, a a truth in that simplicity and
0: so i 'd like to pull on the thread of resilience which you which you mentioned as one of the themes, and it 's something that you explore in your work as well, this idea of building individual and also collective resilience and it feels to me particularly poignant at this moment in time, given all the challenges that we face what are some of the ways in which we can support ourselves and others to proactively adjust to change and transitions, especially when they are so complex and hard?
1: So uh, resilience is used in kind of quite a few different ways. And to pull that down, I like kind of pulling these complex terms into sort of simple categories that do interconnect and overlap, Um, but I find them helpful. So I think there's resilience in terms of our attitudes and our thoughts so our mind resilience and then there's the practical resilience strategies like you've got rainwater butts you've got food growing in the garden you've got multiple ways to heat your building and so there's the practical resilience which permaculture is very advanced you know that's uh, is very much a focus of permaculture design is creating practical resilience strategies. And then there's another third level of community resilience as well. So taking it out from the individual into how do we function as a group, as a family, as a community, as a country, you know, taking that out. And first thing as well is to then think about what is the type of resilience that we're looking for? So is it that we need more resilience in our thinking or more resilience in our community or more practical strategies and of course we need a balance of all of those things but sometimes even if you have food in your cupboards and food in your garden if you're not tuned into feeling resilience then you, those can be quite blind to you those you know the those abundances that you have of You know, water coming out of your tap, clean coming out of your tap, can be really blind Mm. to you if you haven't got the the thinking strategies that support you to appreciate that and to recognise that it is a privilege that not everyone in the world has. And then it's also a case of, in terms of resilience, this thought of: are we trying to get back to where we were, or are we trying to move forward? Transformative resilience. So. Chris Johnson talks about um, this in terms of yeah, is it adaptive resilience? Is it transformative resilience? Is it bounce back? Are we bouncing back or are we bouncing forwards or are we bouncing with? Um, and then are we back? and then spreading resilience as well. So, how do we spread those strategies around so that, like the trees would do, they'd send out me- um, messages to their their fellow trees there's a there's a parasite there build your your cell structure to cope with that better and so what what is it that we're aiming for we hear a lot about the back to normal or the new normal and there isn't a really clear Mm -hmm. message there of us trying to recognize that actually we weren't in a very functioning global place we can redesign for more resilience in the future, that narrative isn't very mainstream in terms of the media and the government messages at the moment. Mm.
0: And actually, so that, that weaves nicely into the piece around education, so how we choose to educate ourselves on the systems that we might like to envision and create, the things that we take for granted that maybe we want to change our relationship with, And so if I were to ask you, what do you think are some of the things that we need to change in education in order to facilitate, I guess, a more resilient culture, a more rich dialogue around what we kind of want to build? How would we change education? What are some of the things that you see working that would be better?
1: I think there needs to be more focus on problem solving and adaptation. So more awareness given to our children that... We as adults we don't have the answers, that we need to co-create them, that there is a world coming that we haven't designed for. Well, actually not coming, we're we're present in a world that we haven't designed for. Mm. And so the I think the current curriculum actually needs to be re examined and said, what what is it that our children need? And we're, you know, there's lots of media stories at the moment about how the, there's a pandemic in mental health in our children at the moment and it really needs to be re-examined of what is appropriate for them at the moment and and actually catering more for the individual. So at the moment in the UK, children are required to be online with their lessons now between 9 and 330 which is a long time to be on a screen mm-hmm. that sense of actually mo- you know moving from one class to another it works in the school but at home Actually, it doesn't work. And, you know, maybe this is working for some children who need the discipline, but then not other, so, uh, as some other children who maybe would like to learn from their parents who are working at home and could do some apprenticeship with their parents or some more project-based work so that they're like, OK, can I learn to weave baskets at the moment? Or can I, you know, can I go deeper into one particular topic and through that if people if the children were allowed to do that and allowed to follow their own interests which is what home education is uh, you know is based on really as um you know traditional home education not this, not school children just stuck at home um if they were allowed to do that then what we would find is a lot of surfacing of gifts that there would be a lot of children that mm. would really discover, you know, uh, uh, what they really love to do. You know, there'll be some children who become expert football players because they're allowed to go and spend three or four hours a day kicking a football around Where, and then you'll get other children who become amazing guitar players or artists or, you know, some that really love reading books some that will write a book in this time some who will you know uh, actually really discover how to meditate and sit and be quiet and connected so I think the education system needs to be redesigned so that it isn't so goal orientated and exam orientated and output orientated and just allows children to find their own learning path so that they're be, they're leaning into their own resilience. Hmm.
0: I love that idea. It makes me think of the Montessori schools and the Steiner schools that really give greater latitude to children and young people to dive into the areas that they're they're most drawn to, that they have aptitude and, and passion for.
1: Yeah. And then through that, you know, it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter what that is, but through finding that passion, then that builds confidence. Then that builds that idea that actually through practice, through commitment and motivation, they can learn something and they can go deep into something. And that will give them the confidence for then whatever next they want to learn rather than, um, you know, the schooling it gets you, you. You know, the furthest you can go is is as far as you can go to get your A grade in that exam whereas actually you know it's quite a narrow train track that kids are on to get to their exams whereas this is much broadening the field widely and I think that will really help children's mental health as well.
0: Given that there's so much difficulty especially in the research that I've read around primary caregivers who are typically mothers who are having to balance well, try and find some kind of balance between supporting their children at home and also being able to continue their professional commitments. Do you think that we're seeing more of a public dialogue around how we've structured these systems and how separated they've become? So the tension between, you know, wanting to be able to show up for your kids, whoever you might be, and then also have a capacity to to work. These are being pitted against each other and it makes me think of... When you talk about this wonderful idea of traditional homeschooling, of course, that's something which one has to actively consciously design for. And I wonder if you feel that there's now becoming a bit more space in the public sphere for people to say, well, actually, do we want to change the way that we educate? Do we want to make it more in line with the way that we live in terms of its fit with our careers so that we can find a more balanced way of living? Um, that's quite a large sort of domain, but I wonder what your thoughts are around that. Do you think people are becoming more interested in different forms of balancing education and work life?
1: I think so. I think that um, it, it's happening. Um, I think, unfortunately, that the the places where those thoughts are happening are then not able to get out. So I feel, I'm i sure it's happening within households around the world of just gay, of questioning it, at, but then being trapped in whatever work situation we're in and what and whatever government guidelines are coming down to how our children are being educated and there isn't enough consultation there to really work out what what is the best fit what how would how can the teachers redesign it let alone the parents so I think it's it's quite a slow trickle down at the moment so i think I think there is a lot of um, discontent. Um, I'm not sure that that's translated yet into what is this opportunity to redesign our education systems and how do we actually do that. I don't think that's really come through the narrative as yet, um, apart Mm. from in small pockets. I'm sure every parent, teacher and child, up and down the land, um, has, you know, has been considering that it's, you know, it's not working. It's not, it's not a good fit at the moment, and it will change as well. And there's a lot of people who are still kind of waiting for schools to go back and things to get back to how they were, and yeah. So I think there's a lot of people that are kind of just waiting (laughs) at the moment
0: yeah and I think that's the thing especially when there's so much uncertainty it's hard to know what to do next and I think one of the things that comes up in conversation a lot for me with with my peers and friends is you know if you're if you're in a position where you're lucky enough not to be having to support others whether it's young family or dependents of any kind or, or relatives whatever it might be if you have the bandwidth to start engaging with these kinds of questions then maybe that's a responsibility we can take on to at least sow the seeds for these changes to happen, for there to be more flexibility. Do you feel that we're seeing a shift in terms of the values that we hold, whether it's through the leadership of younger generations engaging in conversations about life balance or in general response to the crisis that our priorities have somehow changed in the last 12 months?
1: I think so. I think there there has been way more kind of questions around that, that have arisen around global inequalities, around local inequalities, access to food, to education, to healthcare, different valuing of jobs. Um, So jobs that were labelled as unskilled and um, before the pandemic suddenly become key workers. Um, So I think there has been this revealing of values um, I think there's a process going on of kind of revaluing, and how do we, ha- how does that revaluing echo out into pay and where we funnel our resources? Uh, I think that's a process that's that's happening, but there's definitely way more questioning of values because there's many things that were unseen below the surface that we were actually living our lives by, our policies by, that we didn't question before. And there has been more questioning going on now, which is the first step in realigning Mm. them.
0: And I think one of the interesting things to emerge from this situation is the questioning that I'm seeing, at least in, in the role that capitalist systems play in the destruction of our home, in the destruction of natural, what we call natural resources. Even the language is kind of problematic, but I've been reading recently quite a lot about natural capital. And on the one hand, I understand that this language in some ways serves a function in terms of reframing what people think of as valuable, especially within the capitalist realms, within business realms. But the other part of me really winces at the thought that we have to point towards something and its worth in terms of what it can give us what it can do for us what do you think about the ways in which the capitalist system could be changed or maybe it needs to be replaced in order to create a culture which is more regenerative
1: Oh, it's a difficult one isn't it Mm -hmm. it is a it is a slippery slope this kind of defining our ecosystem resources or natural resources or uh, natural capital It, it it comes from the same world view of only valuing what's of worth to us as humans and not even of what's of worth to us as humanity as a whole but to certain Mm -hmm. sectors you know so it's actually even if it's uh you know that rain rainforest is valuable to a lot of people it's not it's only you know if the governments consider it valuable is it valuable you know um, so I think it, it is it's a step but it doesn't really bridge the gap into a regenerative culture it still leaves this kind of massive hole in our worldview and our values and our understanding you know that is, is kind of a huge sort of thing that needs to crumble you know, that capitalism needs to crumble patriarchal uh, a patriarchal needs to crumble and to be replaced with something that is truly regenerative and that is a lot of work for for a lot of people to come to terms with that and to realize that it will actually benefit them them and future generations more
0: Mm. I think just as you're saying that I'm thinking in principle I love the idea but then How do we begin to do things like, you know, I'm looking at my my setup in my podcast room, I've got a microphone that I paid for and a laptop that someone or that many people made. And it's that kind of leaping into the great unknown, the need to be able to envision some other way of creating what we need and what we value that doesn't exist currently now. How do we begin to do that? Do you think it is a question of creating conditions in which we can start to be innovative along a different set of values? Do you think it's something which Maybe our generation won't solve, but we'll be able to lay the groundwork for.
1: Well, we're certainly coming to a kind of point in human history where actually we need to solve these problems um, rather than thinking that a future generation will. You know, and I think this is what the pandemic has shown us: is that we can't wait. The crisis is here. This is, you know, we we might get through the pandemic. but we're still actually in crisis. So, for many many people around the planet at the moment, the pandemic isn't the biggest crisis that they're facing right now. It's just part of the contributing factors for the stress that their their and their communities and their place, um, their land is is under at the moment. There is a responsibility to for all of us to realize that now is the time and that we can't postpone that. We can't say it's too big for us at the moment, but hopefully future generations will solve it. We need to change the trajectory now. And that can happen in small ways as well, that, uh, the, uh, you know, that from going to that, from that very big feeling, and I'm just feeling that in my body as i say it that like it needs to change now the whole systems we can't wait and how that brings up so much internally for me mm-hmm. and then also knowing that actually small shifts now can make a big difference to the the destination in the future so it's just that 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 shifting of attention and priorities uh, and cultural assumptions and all of that that we can you know that, that we can move and we have this opportunity now where all of those things are loosened so I think of culture as this complex web of patterns of thinking and behaving and interacting and you know qu- usually the that web is kind of quite tightly woven mm-hmm at the moment it's not it's like this huge knot that's been pulled apart and we have the opportunity to reweave it we reweave the culture so that we can create what we wanted
0: i love the imagery there of of this web that's kind of condensed into a knot and that now there is greater mobility within it for us to start to pull out those threads and reweave it's funny because when i was starting to research my book last year i found that When I was reaching out to people, there was a period, especially towards the beginning, where there was just this sense of great openness towards having conversation. And I think it's actually, even though people are busied now and starting to try and find ways to cope or get back into some sort of rhythm, certainly within the business side of things, there does seem to be still this openness, this creativity, this curiosity in how we might change how things are. And so I wonder, in relation to your work, you've written about how we might design systems that are more generative than those we currently rely upon. And given the current time that we're in, are there any shifts that you've observed that give you cause for hope?
1: Yeah, we use this word design. And I think when we actually do follow design processes, so um, permaculture is very much based on design. It's about visioning, identifying limits, resources, patterns. Um, you know, finding out what our needs are. When we actually go through a design process, then what can emerge through that is really powerful, and we can manifest. And uh, and that is, you know, manifesting maybe sounds like a kind of new age word, but actually we're manifesting all the time. <laughs> we're bringing things into reality. And you're doing that with a business. You're saying, okay, I want to run a business. I need to you know manifest customers here um and so i think for for me the hope is that actually when we do that when we do follow a design process things will emerge ideas uh people resources new concepts new ways of bringing things together of meeting our needs in more effective ways all of those things will emerge through the process um and, and that gives me hope that actually we can engage in being proactive and creative and responsible and bring ourselves into our own sense of empowerment and ability to change and our sense of agency for change and that is you know really important whether that's in your family, in your ed in your Children's schooling in your own working from home setup, um, whatever it is, to just bring that about in in small ways as well, and to help others to do that.
0: And so, for people who are listening to this, and I'm particularly thinking of those who might be living in cities or built-up areas who maybe have less access to green space or to gardens, for instance, or communal plots. What are some of the ways in which You might suggest they connect with that sense of wanting to become more empowered. What are some of the practices, maybe your resources that might be helpful for people to start?
1: Yeah, so I I don't live in a city, but I did grow up in a city. I think that it's about doing small steps every day and not just necessary steps, but just to have a a practice of self-care in your life that really enables you to feel that nourishment so the nourish and empower phase to do something creative every day whether it's a little doodle or singing a song or just something that shifts you from being this like passive consumer of of entertainment of media um, uh, to actually being this producer this uh, like actually giving something out to to be creative in some way and and I think that that just starts to shift something very gently from this like feeling disempowered and everything's coming at you to feeling like you have some agency there some possibility there and to um and to to use that to kind of create little patterns of success for yourself um that just slowly build momentums that that um momentum motivation movement how those three you know converge with each other um and yeah just asking asking questions as well of your own beliefs if if it's saying well do I really believe this or where's this where's this belief come from have I been culturally conditioned into thinking that I want more Uh, yeah and then a a third um, thing so one is kind of being self-care and being creative and being a producer the other is questioning things questioning your own thinking all the time so that you start to recognize what is kind of what is inherited cultural conditioning, and what your actually own beliefs and values are, and then the third thing is coming into service and being um, asking the question of like how can I help other people at the moment and recognizing then that we have certain privileges of of health of finance of where we live and uh, all of these privileges that we have and it might not be that we're necessarily able to give in terms of money but maybe we can give our time maybe we can just actually um listen you know have a conversation with our our neighbors that gives them a little bit of of hope and connection in the day so how can we be of service just who can we phone up to just have a friendly chat with what can we give yeah. and that shifts things away as mm. well.
0: I love that it's a very concrete but also quite heartfelt set of things that we can do. So if there were a book that you've read that you've been inspired by or that has touched you what book would you recommend that people read and why? Well
1: I've been uh, reading Braiding Sweetgrass mm. which is a lovely book uh, uh, that really connects us with the reciprocity of life and connects us with the plant wisdom and brings us more into the sense of community with the whole world rather than this human nature separation paradigm that we are um, currently under <laughs> um, and to to bring us more into connection with, with other beings. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend Braiding Sweetgrass.
0: I love that book. I, I read it recently also, and it, um, it's just so magical
1: <laughs> in the yeah. way that it's written, especially
0: because it touches on so many scientific aspects of the living world, and it somehow manages to weave it into this really quite sensuous, touching landscape. I don't know, it's a very alive book.
1: It is. It's, yeah, it's the, st- the stories and the science and the heart are all woven in mm-hmm. there, aren't they?
0: And so if I were to ask you what you would like your legacy to be, how might you begin to answer that?
1: Oh, that's a, a big question, interesting question. <laughs> when I started teaching permaculture, or a few years after I started teaching permaculture, I realised that there's a limit to how many people I can teach and that I needed to go to the next layer of doing permaculture teacher trainings so that I'm training people to teach. And so I'm constantly feeling like, okay, you know, what's my, my highest use. So, you know, I could take that to another level and then say, well, now I need to train people to, to run the teacher trainings and to constantly be Moving forward in my niche, so that there are people behind that that then fill that, and I'm constantly working at my highest use so I'd like to feel that there is this uh, le- this legacy of people who can teach cultural emergence can teach um, permaculture that uh, of cultural emergence designers that are engaged and feeling empowered to share and yeah that would be that would be lovely to feel that there's all these people that there is this team of people that could carry on the work that I've started Mm -hmm. uh, carry on and evolve it and the thought that they are expanding into edges that I wouldn't be able to reach so that they uh, that it's not just they're doing what I do but they are doing what they can do to their highest use as well. So it's just encouraging us all to be working to our highest Mm, use. I love that image and it's
0: a lovely way of phrasing it as well. So if I were to ask you what question you might like people to dwell with at this moment in time, what would you suggest?
1: What is my gift that I can offer to the world in this time? And then consider how that could be a contribution to the world because sometimes we get caught up in trying to imagine what the world needs uh, and actually then that kind of maybe leads us into jobs or places or responsibilities that don't match our gifts whereas if we come from what is my gift and then find ways to give it to give it to out into the world then that's a regenerative way that will that will grow mm,
0: I love the way that you flip that question it's really it's, it's lovely it makes it much more inviting as a question <laughs> of what we can actually bring to the world in terms of what we have to contribute and so finally I'd like to end with this question it's it's another quite large imaginal question and so please feel free to answer this in whatever way you feel moved what vision of the world are you holding for others oh
1: that is a lovely question isn't it a <laughs> lovely question well, on and to really feel that way, and i I started my permaculture career with a activity at the end of my permaculture design course and we were asked to express what our long term goals and visions are for ourselves, and we were invited to not think about what we thought was possible, but just what we wanted, what we thought would excite us what we thought would be fun and I put out into the world I I said a bit I was following the what would be fun and I said oh I'd like to teach permaculture in the future because I've just had so much fun here on this course Uh, and I didn't put that out into the world as a a you know a pathway a design a a strategy um you know I I just said it quite flippantly actually (laughs) but it was kind of like what oh yeah that would be really fun yeah I'd like to do that and then from having said that well my whole journey has unfolded and you know I there was like the signs came there of like and this opportunity for this meeting and this course and what have you opened up for me by just following that? what would it be like? What was the fun and so i I think for us all with our visioning, how can we express this what we feel would be fun would be healthy would be nourishing, and to really let go of the well, that can't happen that you know that isn't possible there yes, but No, I can't. No, not. That will never happen. All of those limiting phrases and to just express for ourselves what we think would be possible. And, you know, we have one of those principles of cultural emergence, which is allowing for the possibility of the seemingly impossible. I'll just share that again. Allowing for the possibility of the seemingly impossible. So, how can we engage with that possibility in a in a hopeful way and to just put it out there, voice it, write it, do a social media post about it about what you would like the world to look like what would it, what would be fun to imagine and to hold that as a seed so Outside of my window here, I have an oak tree and it's produced hundreds of acorns here and you can pick up a whole handful with dozens in there and they are completely different, the acorns, to the oak tree. but Each one of those acorns has the potential to transform into an oak tree that will live for hundreds of years. And so we are holding with the seeds of our visions. They're seeds that can totally transform into something strong and huge and regenerative. I'd like to invite us all to connect with our vision that we might see as these seeds and we can't understand how this seed will transform and become real But that's the magic and the hope of emergence.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or a view as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.